Well, good evening. If you would turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 6. Thank you, Adam. Band, praise team, and regen. Adam had a couple of uh, young men travel all the way from Louisville, Kentucky to be in the choir tonight. We have uh, Jack and Josh Forstner. They are uh, the sons of uh, church members back in Louisville, the Forstners. And their father, uh, John, graduated from Auburn. <laughs> Interestingly, he, he is a pilot. So these kids have been all over the world, but they'd never been to Auburn. And so this is their first weekend in Auburn. They got to go to an Auburn football game. They're not going back. <laughs> Just teasing. But uh, it's been a blessing to have them uh, with us. And it was a joy to see you up in the choir. As with all of you, I mean, just a remarkable uh, youth choir. I pray all of you will, yeah. 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 The, uh, the sermon is just uh, icing after, after hearing them sing every Sunday evening. And Adam does an amazing job with them. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless uh, the preaching of the word tonight. Lord, we thank you. Even as we have just sung, we will wait for you. Our hearts uh, are glad in you uh, through the Son of God tonight. And we pray that as we look at this passage, that we would be even more glad. Even in a passage that speaks of certain judgment, we recognize that we have a deliverer in the Son of God. And we ask your blessings on this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite authors, Herman Bovink writes uh, in his book, Guidebook for Instruction in the Christian Religion, some words that I think are very applicable uh, to the flood stories. We kick off the flood story in Genesis, um, and we're going to be looking at that this week and, and next week. And here's what he says. The state of sin, misery, and death is one long, arduous punishment. Above humanity's head is written the word that Moses once uttered when he saw the generation of Israelites die in the desert before his eyes. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Psalm 90 verse 7. At the same time, this state of punishment in the hand of God serves as a means of awakening in humanity, the thought and need for salvation. And didn't we see that after 9-11? Of course, today is 9-11. We remember that. We won't ever forget 9-11. Um, and after 9-11, um, we, we recognize this because at the end of the 20th century, at the end of, as my kids call it, the 1900s, uh, the, the United States stood over the world like a, like a colossus, you know? Um, we, we, we had no military. We had no economic peers. And, and we felt invulnerable. And 9-11 changed all that. And with 9-11, we were reminded 
on that horrible day that we are not as safe and secure uh, as we once thought. We, to use Bavik's language, needed to be awakened to our true need for salvation. Well, by the time you get to 2020, we, we had forgotten how vulnerable we were. And then the COVID pandemic hit. And overnight, I mean, it happened. I remember it was March the 13th. Uh, I was teaching a class, and as the class was over, I got word from the administration that we were canceling the rest of the semester. It was utterly shocking. Um, we were shocked to learn that even the best doctors, and we've got good doctors here at, at Lakeview, but even the doctors were initially in the dark on how to treat this COVID pandemic. And, and we learned that there were no medicines that we knew that could, that could protect us. And the prevailing narrative was that any one of us could get the, uh, the COVID at any time and die within days after getting it. Well, again, to use Bovink, we needed to be um, awakened to our need for a, a sure and, and, and very hopeful salvation. Well, that's one of the great benefits of reading and considering the flood narrative. Because then Jesus will say that uh, when he returns, it's going to be like the days of Noah. Uh, and so this isn't just something about in history. This is something that is going to point forward to another judgment that's coming. And it should serve as a means of awakening in us the thought and the need for salvation. But it also drives home because in this narrative... Moses is centering on one man. And in this one man, we learn how one can be saved in the midst of judgment. And that brings us to the first part of this passage in verse uh, 8. God's man for the times. We're going we're gonna to see two points in chapter 6. God's man for the times and God's plan for the times. Well, the first thing we see is God's man for the times. Note with me in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So again, this word favor is the, is the Hebrew word that would translate well, grace for us. This is unmerited grace, which means Noah didn't earn this. You don't earn grace. You earn a paycheck, okay? You, uh, but, he, but there is a grace... There is a favor on Noah, uh, which means that Noah actually deserved the judgment that was going to fall on the rest of humanity. Uh, but here we see that God's grace in Noah is the only hope in the midst of certain judgment. And it's the first occurrence of grace in the Bible. So again, there's a lot of first in the book of Genesis. Noah found grace. And this is... The first thing that is told about Noah, um, he found grace. You know, grace is the foundation of every life that is well-pleasing to God. If your life is well-pleasing to God, it is a life that is grounded and informed 
and fueled by grace. Um, Grace is the source from which every blessing we have comes. Um, It was the grace of God, in other words, and not the graces of Noah which preserved him. Here's a man who's living in a world very much like ours. We saw the description last week. Uh, The Lord saw, verse 5, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So here's this man living in this world of utter wickedness, whereas we're going to see in verse 12, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, and he, unlike the rest of humanity, was compelled by grace to set his face against the whole current of public opinion. It became irrelevant to him. And, and, and what a testimony to, to the sufficiency and the, the keeping power of divine grace. And if you, can, if you can just imagine what he's going through, he is utterly countercultural at this point. Um, and being countercultural can be very painful and it can be very isolating and lonely. But it's also when you most often enjoy and experience God's grace most acutely. Well, look at me in verse 9. Abruptly, it just says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So these are the generations. That tells us it's opening up a new section in uh, the Bible. Uh, We saw it in chapter 2, verse 4. We saw it again in chapter 5, verse 1. At this point... Sin has now fully spread, and it is bringing forth death. But eight will be saved. Eight will be saved. Uh, In fact, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 20, Peter tells us eight persons were brought safely through water. Of course, seven of them owe it to this single one, but that in any, is not in any way to deny that they were uh, taught the same gospel uh, that Noah believed because he was their patriarch. And, and of course, Noah had uh, those who breathed into his life, including Methuselah. And, and so uh, eight are saved. As Hebrews 11 asserts, listen to this, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And this minority is going to, uh, to use Jesus' words, inherit the earth. Uh, It seems that from the way Moses lays out this account of the flood, that his main purpose isn't just to show why God sent a flood. Now, we saw that. Um, It's because humankind deserved judgment. But it's also to show us why God 
saved Noah. That's important for all of us. And the reason that God saved Noah, we see right here in verse 9. He was righteous, he was blameless, and he walked with God. Now, um, what does it mean that he was righteous? That meant that means that his life corresponded to the law of God. Now, the law of God had not been written out as it will be later written um, in, in the book of Exodus, but God had given Moses or Noah the law and it had been written on his heart and he lived a life that was correspondent to that law. And of course, that law just reflected the character of God. Secondly, he was blameless. That does not mean sinless. Noah had a sin nature just like you and me. He was a sinner, as we just established. He needed the grace of God. But to be blameless means that he kept a short account with God, and he kept a short account with his neighbor. He lived a life of repentance. Uh, he was known for his notorious repentance. And then third, he walked with God. What a description. I can't think of a better way uh, to describe someone. That's something you might want to put on your tombstone if it describes you. He walked with God. That means that he had an intimate relationship with God. He communed with God. That was his pattern of life. Of course, these are not works. Let's remember that. Hebrews eleven seven tells us, uh, that he walked by faith. And so when it says he was righteous, he was righteous by grace through faith. When it says he was blameless, he was blameless by grace through faith. And when it says that he walked with God, he walked with God by grace through faith. Um, but this is the first mention of the word righteousness or righteous in the Bible. And we know uh, later that it is by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. Um, in fact, 2 Peter is going to call him, in chapter 2, verse 5, a herald of righteousness. So not only was he righteous by grace through faith, he was a herald of righteousness. Now, what did he believe, though, when it says that he walked by faith? Well, it wasn't just, as the new king of England says... Uh, generic faith that he believed. It was the faith. He believed in the one who would come. He believed in the, the Savior who would come from the seed of the woman. And that's why Noah was saved. Well, notice in verse 10, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, we're going to spend more time looking at them later. Uh, but for suffice to say, Noah was fruitful. Now, three sons doesn't seem like very much fruit. Um, but um, from the weakness of only three sons, we're going to have a new humanity uh, replenishing the earth after the flood. You, we saw in Genesis 4 that... Uh, humanity had gotten too strong. You remember that text in Chronicles where it says of King uh, Uzziah that he was marvelously helped 
until he became strong. Uh, strength for humans in the Bible is a handicap, okay? And Genesis 4 uh, reflects the fact that humanity had become too strong. And so with three sons, in the weakness of three sons, God is going to replenish the earth, uh, which is remarkable when we see the description of the old Adamic world that is being reflected before the, the, the judgment of the flood. Notice in verse 11, remarkable description. I think you could easily uh, put in the United States here. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That is the natural way that humankind corrupts the earth. In fact, if we, if we don't see violence, it's because of God's common restraining grace. Uh, were it not for God's common restraining grace, you would see violence in every nook and cranny of a fallen world. Well, that is essentially what has happened right before the flood. It's, it's as if God is pulling back his restraining grace and saying, here's what humanity is apart from my common grace. Um, and so this is the last picture of what the world looks like before the deluge. And it does scare me a bit because it, when I read this, it's as if I'm reading the newspaper, uh, the 2022 edition of the newspaper. God here sees the corruption of the world, but I want you to note the language of seeing being used repeatedly. Again, verse 11, the earth was corrupt, notice, in God's sight. He's very aware. He sees. He's not oblivious. And then notice in verse 12, uh, and this verse might remind you of another verse that we saw uh, several months ago. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so over and over again, uh, it's emphasized that God saw. It's like he's saying to Noah, I see it, Noah. I know that you think that this world is out of control and, and that I'm not in control, but I see it. And I am going to act. It's as if he is saying that here. God sees the wickedness and he is going to punish it. But it's also clear that Moses is contrasting this world from the Genesis 1 good world that God created. Now, why do I say that? Again, verse 12, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. Well, hear these words in chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, same words. It was very good. So this is what humankind has done with God's good world. And, and that word corrupt, it, it's a word that means to spoil, uh, to ruin, 
to devastate. And the world is also filled with violence. And so when humankind first was first created, uh, we were commanded to fill the earth, right? Genesis chapter 1, they have done so. But in doing so, they have filled it with violence. We have, we have reproduced little atoms who are naturally murderous, violent, sinful human beings. That is the, the human plight. Well, notice in verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, I want you to notice something. The word for destroy is the same word translated as corrupt in verses 11 and 12. And so in verse 12, it says, behold, it was corrupt. And here, behold, I will destroy them. I will corrupt them. So there is a play on words here. In other words, because humankind has corrupted creation, God is going to ruin them. Now, I want you to keep in mind, though, judgment is not a bad thing. Judgment is a good thing. Um, it's not good if you're not repentant, but judgment is a good thing. It's not good in the sense that what happens to you will not go well with you. But judgment is good because it means justice is being realized and a just world is the only good world. And so uh, when one is faithful to the Lord in an unfaithful world and you experience the injustice of the world, judgment is the most beautiful word in the human language. If you've experienced injustice, the word judgment is the most beautiful word. And, and that's why even the psalmist says, I will sing of your justice. I will sing of your justice. Because justice means God's going to make what is wrong right. He's going to reverse what is unjust. Um, in other words, God's judgment has two sides. On one side, he visits with punishment those who do wrong. Now, he may not do it immediately because there is a long suffering with God, but he will do it. But on the other side, he's going to make right those who have been done wrong. So that uh, first part of the passage speaks of God's man for the times and the last part of this passage really takes us through chapter 7 which we won't look at tonight God's plan for the times look with me in verse 14 he says make yourself an ark of gopher wood um, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch now, what's interesting here, there are intentional similarities between the creation of the ark and the original creation and, one day, the creation of the tabernacle. 
So you have the creation of God's good creation, and it's like the ark is going to serve as a microcosm of God's good creation in the midst of a fallen world, and the tabernacle will serve as kind of like a microcosm of the God's good creation in, in a broken world. Uh, and so in each of these accounts, God speaks, an action is commanded. The command is carried out by God's will, and each narrative concludes with a divine blessing. We're not going to see the divine blessing in Genesis from this section till chapter 9. And so the ark and the tabernacle in the future will point back to the Garden of Eden, but it's also going to point forward as well. Now, I want you to notice this word translated ark. Uh, where do we get that word ark? Uh, it's actually from the Latin translation the Latin Vulgate, um, the word arca in Latin means box, which means this would have been a big box. Um, but what's interesting is that the only other place in the Old Testament where the word ark, where this word is used, is in Exodus 2, where it refers to the basket where baby Moses was placed in. The same exact word, Exodus 2, verses 3 and 5. It's the basket that his mother placed him in. And so Moses, like Noah, a righteous man, will experience salvation through an ark. It's, it's again, uh, these connections are so uh, intentional. And the ark is to be made of gopher woods. How many of you have gopher trees in, in your backyard? Uh, well, I'm glad you didn't raise your hand because we don't know what type of tree it is. Um, they just speculate, but it certainly was some kind of, uh, a lot of scholars believe it was a, a kind of cypress tree, but it, we don't know what it is. But what is more clear is that these rooms were to be covered um, in and out with pitch. He says, make rooms in the dark, ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, why is that important? Well, the Hebrew word for pitch has the same root as the word for atonement or to cover. Uh, the Hebrew word here is kafer, kafer, which is translated 70 times in the Old Testament to make atonement. And so here uh, we have a hint at the covering of the atonement that will occur even within the ark, which is to be the place of God's protection of his people in the time of judgment. So they are being covered, all right, by this ark in the midst of judgment. Again, it's, it's just remarkable language that, that speaks of our so great a salvation. Well, notice in verse 15, this is how you're to make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits. Now, what is a cubit? It's, a, a cubit is the distance between a man's elbow and the end of his hand. They estimate that to be around 18 inches. So that's one cubit. And so it says that he was to make it the length 
300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And so the measurements that, uh, that we get from this are roughly uh, this, this box, this ark, is to be 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Verse 16, make a room for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower second and third decks. Now, I, I jumped all over rabbinical tradition this morning uh, because the tradition of the rabbis was not authoritative, okay? Uh, much of the tradition was just corrupted understanding of, of God's hesed, God's steadfast love and faithfulness. But with that said, uh, rabbinical tradition uh, was this, that the, there were three levels, well, that's clear, but the top level was for where humans would reside. And, and then the middle level was where... Um, the, the animals would be. And then the bottom level was where the refuse would be. Um, we can't say that authoritatively. I just say that as an interesting side point. But more importantly, this is the third announcement by God that he is going to destroy all the creatures of the earth that are not on that ark. But the first time, he explains he will destroy it by a flood. This is the first time we see that right here. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth. And, and incidentally, um, that's why oftentimes when you read about the sea, when you read about a body of water in, in the Old Testament, it, it speaks of judgment. All right? That's why we baptize in water. Um, there's a judgment that has taken place in the substitute that is being symbolized by the water. Um, and so the substitute took the death that you deserve. He was buried, and then he was raised out of judgment. The, the judgment uh, verdict has been reversed, okay? And, and so the floodwaters... It is kind of like the first time we start to see that. Remember in Revelation, there will be no more sea. Um, that, that's speaking about the fact that there will no longer be any judgment. And so here's the first time we see that. Uh, no, uh, there, will be a, there will be a flood. Um, and there are at least three reasons I think that God pronounces judgment three times. This is the third time that he's bringing in or warning about judgment. The first being to emphasize the certainty of judgment. So in the Hebrew, when you repeat something, it's for emphasis. It's like the Hebrew doesn't have exclamation points. And so instead of putting exclamation points, they will repeat something. So for instance, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Well, he could have just written holy with an exclamation point, except they don't have exclamation points. So holy, holy, holy is for emphasis. Well, here we're seeing a repetition of this pronouncement of judgment, which means you need to take heed 
It is certain. Secondly, to stress the fact that in the end, God will be honored. His name will be vindicated. And then third, to emphasize God's patience and his long-suffering nature. And that he has given us time for repentance. Again, do not in any way confuse his long-suffering for indifference. We've already seen in this passage, God sees. God sees. He sees the evil and no evil will make it out of here alive. But this is also the first mention uh, in the Bible of the word covenant. I will establish my covenant with you. Even though I do think a covenant was made in chapter 2 with Adam, um, uh, Hosea uh, will, will tell us that. But here, this is the first time the explicit word covenant is used. Um, and so Noah here is going to go into the ark, not merely as a survivor, but as the bearer of God's promise for a new age. And so this is the Noahic covenant that God is making. God is promising a stage. He is promising that there is going to be a stage by which his redemptive purposes play out. Um, and here he's promising that he is going to preserve the line from the seed of the woman through the family of Noah. Of course, we'll learn in time, it won't just come through all three sons, it'll come through one son, uh, through Shem. But for now, we see that the promise made in Genesis 3.15 is going to be fulfilled in spite of universal judgment. And by the way, this sustained Moses for a century as he labored in the midst of severe hostility. As people made fun of him, think about it, there had never been a flood, nor had there ever been even rain. <laughs> we know that from earlier scripture. There had never been rain. And so the promise is what sustained him. In the same way, that same promise sustains us. The promise that God is going to make all things right and he's going to do it through the Son of God. And, and so he labored and he labored, but he was fueled by this promise. And part of that labor was to take two of each kind of animal into the ark for their preservation. By the way, I think this reflects the fact that there will be heaven, uh, animals in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, the, you're going to see uh, in, in, from Isaiah, for instance, that the, the, uh, the lion will lay down uh, with the lamb. Uh, there is going to be a restoration in the human or in the animal kingdom. Uh, and so um, your dogs will be there. Uh, your cats won't be, but um, <laughs> you can only see that in the Hebrew. Well, notice in verse 19, and of every living thing of all flesh, 
You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals uh, according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Again, according to its kind. According to its kind. That's so important. Um, That's important to male-female relationships. According to its kind. And God determines the kind. In other words, ontology matters. Your being, your essence matters. Two of every sort shall come into to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And so the food that Noah is to pack in the ark has already been prescribed in chapter one. The diet, I hate to tell you this, is vegetarian. Uh, He will not be eating ribs on the ark. Uh, But most importantly, uh, the final statement in this section is really highlighted in chapter seven, which we'll look at next time. Um, And that is, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Real quickly, look with me in chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And then notice in verse 9, as God had commanded Noah. And then in verse 16, those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him. And so this is, uh, emphasis here is on the obedience of the righteous one for the salvation of a people. You think God is wetting our appetite for someone who will bring a greater salvation than Noah, whose name means rest, a greater rest than Noah. And so we see here what it means to be righteous. So we as Protestants, we celebrate the glorious truth That when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. It is an imputed righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's nothing that we have added to. And yet, the moment we trust in Jesus, one of the evidences that we have been justified is that real righteousness begins to be worked in and through us so that we grow in our obedience. We grow in our righteous life. Uh, My brother Jordan, Jordan, you here tonight? Uh, Jordan is a pastor that comes often on Sunday nights and he goes out and evangelizes with us on Thursday nights. And he said, the biggest problem I see in Auburn, when we evangelize these kids who were raised in the church is the problem of antinomianism, that they trusted in Jesus supposedly, but they're out And they have no repentance, no remorse over their drunkenness. Okay? And we see here that the really righteous person is the person who does what God commands. Noah was not saved by works, but his works reflected the reality of the grace of God that was clearly on his life. And this building of this ship uh, 
must have been so costly. It cost him his life, really. It cost him the rest of his life. Uh, and it, lost, it cost him all social capital. Are we willing to give up social capital? Are we willing to give up approval from a, a world opposed? Are we really prepared for that? We need to be prepared for that. After all, again, there had not been a flood. And Ning, notice back in chapter 2, verse 5. I'll just read this and we'll close. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land. So here was a man who's building an ark for a flood and it hasn't even rained before. And they would have been taunting him. But social capital was not important to Noah. Why? Because he was righteous. Because he walked with God. He was faithful. And I do think it's significant uh, that God gave such an important task, not to an angel, but to a man, uh, a, a, a righteous man. And it would be through his righteous act that a people would be saved. Okay? Now, what does that prepare us for? Listen to Paul's words as we close here. Romans 5, 19. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And what will that righteousness, what will it give us capital uh, to secure? Salvation through judgment. Judgment's coming. And that righteousness will be our ark of safety. The righteousness of the one who is greater than Noah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who offers us true and enduring rest. And that is a word for every believer here. It's also a word for you who do not have that rest. For those of you who cannot say, I am righteous in God's sight because I have not trusted in the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Adam and the musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. Maybe you are convicted. I'm not like Noah. No one can describe me the way Noah is described here, as a man who is righteous, a man who is blameless, a man who walked with God. Why? Because of the grace of God that was on him, because of the faith that he had. And maybe you're tonight sitting there going, I can't, I can't say that about myself. I don't believe anybody else could say that about me. But we could, if you'll come to Christ, the righteous one, if you will trust in the one who offers you a perfect righteousness that will stand before a God who is infinite in his righteousness. So won't you come as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.